Welcome to The Professor and the Hack, episode 79. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmonson. And with me, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen and PVO. How are you? Good, Hugh. We are finally older than Joe Biden when he becomes president. 79. We are, as episodes. That's true. Um, <laughs> it took a long time to get there, let me just tell you, but it took a long time for Joe Biden to get there too. So uh, uh, the world wishes him well. But of course, the focus is on the other side of the Pacific at the moment. Mm. Due west from Seattle uh, with what China's up to. And that looks like it's going to grip us probably for the rest of our lives, I suspect. Um, where do you see we are at the moment on all of this? The words have become very heated. The cartoons more heated or the images more heated and nasty. Uh, is this a fight that we have any chance of, of winning? I, look, I don't think so, but that doesn't make it a fight not worth having at one level. I'm, I'm really torn on this because the pragmatist in me can look at this and say, look, China is an emerging superpower. It's really, in many ways, already a, a superpower just continuing to rise and, and eventually it will rise well beyond the United States just simply because of its economic development and its population size, its geographical advantages, you name it. And in many ways, its political system's advantages too, where it's embracing capitalism without the messiness of democracy, that thing that, uh, that, that I happen to like. So at the one level, practically, poking it, poking the bear, is not a clever move and we get little out of it and they don't take it lightly. They fire back. And, and if anyone hurts, it's a middle power like Australia. However, I, I, I profoundly have a problem with not fighting back because they are an authoritarian dictatorship. They do throw their weight around on the world stage. Uh, they are rather arbitrary in the way that they impose sanctions and in their disregard and disrespect for the rule of law. And I can't stand the utter, utter hypocrisy in them trying to make political advantage of errors Australia makes, given the way they conduct themselves. Yes, the Brereton report highlights things that no one in Australia is proud of in relation to sections of our armed forces. But you would never see a, a, an opening up report of that nature in China uh, with what they do to their own citizens, what they have done militarily over the years, uh, what they do on a daily basis, including to journalists, no less, um, and the weaker people, of course, to say the very least, in concentration camps by the hundreds of thousands. So, you know, where does it go? I don't know. Uh, ultimately, I suspect tensions hopefully decline because the only alternative to that uh, isn't just trade problems, but it's, it's spilling over uh, into actual strategic and even tactical uh, military concerns along the way. What do you think? Well, I think the really important questions here, because China is, as you say, asserting itself as it sees it has a right to do as a, as a, as a power emerging from all the humiliations that they keep on going on about over the last 150, nearly 200 years of foreign dominance, all well and good to them. But what troubles me is that a few years ago, there was this perception, you'll recall, that the coalition government um, celebrated getting into a free trade agreement with China, all the benefits that would flow from that, the sense that China was a uh, reliable partner that would obey, by, obey essentially the rules of, of world trade and just, you know, just essentially a rules-based order, to use that terrible cliche, but that's basically mm. what we're trying to map out. And what's evident, it's not just this image that's been sent out that's just an irritant and a provocation. But what matters more deeply is the fact that they can't be trusted on trade matters. 
Um, mm. You know, our, our relationship with them, whatever else it might be, is fundamentally one of trade. And yet uh, it seems to me to be tenuous, uh, the connections between um, the, the claims as to why our coal, our, our, our barley, you know, our, our lobster, our wine have to be stalled and what actually is going on, which seems to be much more to do with China trying to silence us uh, on matters that we're entitled to speak up about. That's the bit that concerns me about it, that China is now feeling sufficiently confident in its place in the world to essentially say, we are big, we are powerful, and if you want to play with us, here are the, the rules of our game. And that is, you know, just keep selling us stuff, bank your profits, and don't raise questions about the way, you know, we do things, or you'll be punished. And don't get me wrong, great powers have all throughout time thrown their weight around uh, in various ways. And the United States, for all its critics, which I would regard as close to one of the most benevolent great powers, and I don't say that saying that it is benevolent, I say in comparative terms with its power and reach on the global stage versus its capacity had it gone in a different course as an expansionist rather than simply through spheres of influence rather, you know, as opposed to everything from the British Empire backwards with actual geographical and territorial expansion. We've been relatively lucky when it comes to the US, but it's still threw its weight around enormously and continues to on the international stage. It, it bullies in a trade sense. It does all sorts of you know, clandestine operations and has done over the years in different parts of the world from Africa to South America, you name it. However, at its core, it's still a democracy. And I know that some people would say, PVO, that's a fig leaf. But I say, actually, it's more than that. Because it, it means that there is some check there uh, and some recognition of rules-based systems and rule of law uh, and, and capacity for regime change through that democratic process that is not present in China. And that's what worries me so much about China. And then the other thing that you just mentioned, Hugh, you know, you talk about the, the modern shame of the last 150, 200 years of China. That's such an important point because... A lot of people in the West, unless you've read up significantly on China, which I know you have, it's people don't realise that the Chinese cultural attitude comes from its historical dominance. It's had a tough 200 years uh, ever since the British dealt it a serious blow. However, prior to that, China for thousands of years was the global superpower. It just so happened that it was in a far-flung part of the world that those who write European history don't think of China as the great, powerful nation of the world that it was. They, they, they focus in on, you know, the warring tribes and parties uh, originally in the Middle East and then throughout uh, Europe, including the, the UK. Uh, China, throughout that whole time, was a bigger, bigger elephant in the room. Um, but, you know, other than its Silk Road links, it was where it was, uh, dominant and happy to, in a sense, not be too expansionist. And ultimately, that was one of the reasons that it fell, uh, amongst others, to the British the way that it did, because it, it didn't have an outward-leaning look. And it's changed that now. 200 years on, it's not only got the shame of the last 200 years that it wants to write, it not only then also has a view that history is all about China being dominant, it's just that the West doesn't see it that way because of the last couple of hundred years. It also has learned both from the West and how it does business vis-a-vis -vis capitalism and trade, but it's also learned from its own mistakes 
where it wasn't expansionist enough in its spheres of influence and reach. And it's correcting that. And part of the bullying, if I could put it that way, is wrapped up in all of that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, for most of that very long history, it was essentially an imperial power in the sense that there were uh, wars that took place between parts of China, uh, and then you'd have imperial dynasties would run sometimes for hundreds of years. Uh, you get the feeling that uh, 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 Xi Jinping has looked at that and thought, well, that's not a bad system. Um, you know, I think I'll be the new emperor. He's effectively, in terms of his powers, uh, an emperor in all but, uh, you know, but, uh, but name, although we've yet to see whether he'll try the Kim route in North Korea and try to make it a uh, hereditary empire. But he certainly has accrued enormous power uh, towards him in this. And I think your, 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 com your comments there uh, are entirely uh, correct, of course. If you look at the this nasty picture that went out was put out by Zhao Li Jiang uh, to his 830-odd thousand Twitter followers initially, and he's the foreign affairs uh, operator. But another guy to watch on Twitter is Hu Shi Jin, uh, H-U-X-I-J-I-N. He is the editor-in-chief of the Global Times, which is one of the state-run uh, English language um, uh, media outlets. And if you look at the language he uses, and he, he will only use it because it's being sanctioned and allowed by those in authorities. It is extremely inflammatory. It is constantly inflammatory. Uh, this is the guy who's saying that um, uh, Scott Morris should, should kneel down and slap himself across the face and kowtow to the people of Afghanistan. This kind of language which comes out of the absurd um, you know, excesses of the Cultural Revolution now being applied externally. He also speaks of Australia as sitting at the fringe of Western civilization. And that itself is kind of subtle and interesting because it says that geographically, we're not in the United States and we're not in Europe. Um, and if those are as sort of the outgrowths of Western civilization, then what are we? Well, they've sort of identified that we're on the fringe of those. Essentially, we're in the Chinese hemisphere. And implicit in that is the suggestion that um, we may have no option in, in their view, but to, uh, but to acknowledge where we sit in the world and, um, you know, maybe kneel down and slap ourselves on the face and, and wake up to where we are. And, and part of that, of course, as well, is part of the bullying because uh, China wants to control its sphere of influence geographically in particular, but it also sees threat in Australia's alliance with Western powers, including the US and the UK, uh, and it sees our geographical positioning in the context of that as a threat because it allows the US to have uh, its positioning. You've then obviously got all of Europe, democratic Europe, I mean, as well. And then you've also got uh, the rising reality, and it will take a long time, decades, in fact, at a minimum, but the rising reality uh, of the balancing power of India uh, as a essentially a Western country in many respects, certainly democratically speaking. Uh, and it's right on the border, obviously, to China. And it will one day surpass China unless its poverty uh, prevents it from doing so and, and all of its internal issues, partly a consequence of democracy, frankly. But then Australia sits uh, to its south in the position that we're in. It is a geographical threat with, as a rising middle power if we have those firm, powerful links uh, into that alliance sphere, democratic alliance sphere that I talk about. And China doesn't, doesn't like that. Uh, it would rather Australia kowtow and that be the beginning of a cultural decay 
in Australia that sees us as a subservient to China. So part of what it's trying to do, of course, is paint us as obliged and required and by necessity needing to uh, engage with China and to shut up essentially with our criticisms of China. And, and I think we should fight that with all the force we have myself, uh, because even though there is economic pain uh, in, in China bullying us, if we try to stand up to it, the alternative is worse. You know, it's, you, you would rather fight uh, on your feet than die on your knees. And China is asking us to survive on our knees which as far as I'm concerned uh, is, is, is worse than, than maintaining our links uh, culturally and in particular democratically. That's what I really have an issue with. If China went down the path that some have predicted incorrectly over the years of democratising, then great. You know, I don't have the slightest problem with it emerging as a great power uh, in the world other than the natural tensions that great powers cause. But the, the issue is that it's actually gone the other way, Hugh, as you identified just before. Uh, far from democratising, it is actually becoming more of an authoritarian dictatorship. And that's the most concerning thing. The other thing, which is, as we come out of COVID, is that the, uh, the hard-pressed university sector is desperately hoping that uh, we will get uh, foreign uh, international uh, students will come back in again and breathe life back into the university sector, which has been so hard hit under the travel restrictions under COVID. China is such a huge player in that. But, uh, you know, if we look at coal, we look at all those other uh, commodities that we're selling over there and, and that are running into all sorts of trouble. Uh, the Chinese can turn off the tap on visas, exit visas, for Chinese students and can destroy essentially that revenue stream in future as it tries to grow up again. Um, uh, th that they did it with, uh, for example, gamblers coming across the Chinese border into Macau yep. uh, and, and, and in a moment basically shut down the entire Macau economy. And so that's another one to watch. And Stephen McDonald, the, the, the really, in my view, brilliant uh, China-based correspondent, he was a former ABC correspondent there now with the BBC, has made the point that this attack against Australia is actually a shift from a traditional position that China has taken. China has always said, we don't interfere in other people's business. And we don't want anyone to inf interfere with our own internal business. That's always been their rule. But they have interfered in something which substantially is about our relationship with Afghanistan, what, what may or may not have happened in relation to Afghanistan, there's no China involvement in that. And, and yet on this occasion, China has dealt itself into what is essentially a, uh, an internal matter for Australia and a, uh, a matter with Afghanistan, and that that itself is a shift, and we should acknowledge it as a shift, and, and presumably expect to see more of that in China, uh, dealing out slaps and, and various other things to other countries over things that do not on their face have anything to do with China. And that itself is a shift, as uh, Steve McDonald has pointed out. Let's take a quick break, though. We've got lots of other domestic stuff to talk about. Uh, see you in just a moment. 10 News First Person brings you quality stories from the 10 News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was uh, Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself you know I had one free arm I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. People power now. We will not be silent. Subscribe to 10 News First Person wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back this is episode 79 of The Professor and the Hack. 
Now, the signals are there that uh, after the long, dark winter of uh, COVID, the economy is showing signs of growth, that there's some, at least some optimism about what 2021 might bring. Um, China, I suppose, remains, we, we've kind of moved on from China, but I guess our hopes going into 2021 and also, you know, what may be an election year for Scott Morrison, uh, really rest a bit on China. But, but un- underneath it all, uh, we're, we feel as if we're in a better place than we were a year ago. Oh, yeah. Look, these GDP numbers uh, essentially mean that Australia can claim that we're out of recession. You know, a a recession is is two negative growth quarters. uh, And, you know, if you have a third, then you start looking at whether or not we're moving towards depression territory. Uh, But if you then have an instant uplift, then you're in technical terms out of recession. Now, there's lots of important caveats on this. Uh, The reason that Australia you know, moves out of recession uh, with these GDP numbers is just very simple because we ploughed so far backwards because of the pandemic. It wasn't what is often a, a recessionary period where you go back in negative terms by, you know, point something of a percent for two and then maybe three or even maybe four quarters. Uh, when you plummet backwards by five or six points, courtesy of a pandemic, and a lot of other countries have done much worse than that, it makes it much easier to then see a positive growth quarter subsequently, particularly when things are opening back up after lockdowns, notwithstanding some of the problems in Victoria. So uh, no surprises to see Australia get a positive growth quarter. No surprises, therefore, for us to be technically out of recession. But the caveat for 2021, which anyone in business certainly knows, and with so many people having lost their jobs there, they'd, they'd be just as aware of this. And of course, anyone surviving on JobKeeper uh, wondering whether their employer is going to keep them employed when that runs out in March uh, would be well aware of this too. Uh, the pain in the post-recessionary period is often greater than the pain during the recession because there's a lag effect. And we saw that in the early 1990s in the wake of the recession we had to have, according to Paul Keating. Uh, and that was mild in comparison very mild, frankly, in comparison to what we're going through now. Uh, And there is still uncertainty around a vaccine, around the nature of third and fourth waves, around how international travel does or doesn't open up. And Hugh, as you mentioned, uh, when you throw in a trade war with China, that's problematic too. So, yep, you know, positive GDP is good. End of a technical recession is good. But now comes the really heavy lifting to get unemployment down, to survive the end of JobKeeper, uh, and to make sure that the after effects and the shocks from that recession don't become so lasting that you have pockets of the economy and frankly pockets, generational pockets, particularly the youth uh, who don't find work for years. Absolutely. Um, we saw two things that have happened in recent days. One is the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, has written to Ida Buttrose, the chair of the ABC, uh, having a go at the Four Corners report that looked into um, the personal lives of uh, predominantly Alan Tudge and Christian Porter, two uh, prominent ministers in the government. Among the questions that Fletcher has put is, why are the personal lives of politicians newsworthy, plainly believing that they are not? Um, and, and, and plainly would rather these things weren't talked about. Another thing they're very keen not to have talked about is robo-debt. Talk us through the latest in that. <laughs> yeah, look, robo-debt is, has been interesting for this parliamentary sitting week. One more to go before the end of the parliamentary year. Uh, Labor keeps going back to robo-debt, uh, and they were always planning to, because once that settlement of $1.2 billion was paid out 
by the Commonwealth to those impacted by robo-debt, uh, biggest ever class action payment of its kind in this country's history. Labor was always going to go there because Scott Morrison, who we should note has been in self-isolation answering questions via video link, uh, when asked questions, more so by his own side, because Labor have chosen to target the minister in the parliament itself, but Scott Morrison was at the heart of robo-debt at every level. We've talked about this before. He was the social services minister when it was first conceived. He was the treasurer when they were trying to use the proceeds from it to, path, to make a pathway towards surplus. And then he was prime minister at the last election, again, trying to benefit off that surplus that was never delivered, but was supposed to be realised in part off the back of uh, payments coming in via robo-debt. So this is his mess from start to finish in terms of ownership. Labor wanted to go there hard in question time. It has done so uh, day in, day out this week. However, with only very limited traction because of the China issues, quite frankly, and because of the ongoing uh, spats around military citations, meritorious citations, courtesy of, of Afghanistan and the Brereton Report. So uh, Labor will continue to go there, I think, but they're looking for some clean air uh, when doing so. Uh, some interesting admissions in the parliament, Hugh, just very quickly, the minister to try to get himself out of this mess, getting asked quite pointed questions on Wednesday, uh, sorry, on, on Tuesday, I should say, uh, by Bill Shorten about suicides that were causal potentially from robo-debt notifications. Uh, he actually tried to fall back on rhetorically that there was no admission of guilt or liability as part of the agreement for the $1.2 billion settlement. Now, that might work if you're a businessman uh, being technically legal. But if you're a politician in the parliament and you've just doled out $1.2 billion of taxpayers' money to settle with people who have lost lives and had just had lives destroyed where they haven't been lost, boy, that just looks like you've used taxpayers' dollars to try to avoid responsibility on something. I thought that was a shocking look from Stuart Robert in the parliament. So you can bet Labor will keep going there. Well, it shows that they're using a defence like that, how little else they've got. Uh, yeah. You know, it's such a horrible mess. And uh, to go to a technical, you know, to, to a legalistic deal like that, it, it, it doesn't, I don't think, fool anyone. The government doesn't give out money when it doesn't see a liability. But um, I'm interested also on this business of the pressure put on the ABC over that report mm. uh, that came out, because it's plainly the detailed questions that were put by Paul Fletcher. Uh, to Ida Buttrose, asking that she as chair explain why and where in the code uh, basically the entire program was allowable. But, but really pivoting on the question, why are the personal lives of politicians newsworthy? Um, that is, uh, you, can, you can see that Paul Fletcher, as he was drafting these things up, would have had the hot breath of various people over his shoulder, figuratively speaking, including the Attorney General Christian Porter, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of an anger in this letter uh, that somehow or other they feel as if the ABC has done something dirty on them. Um, and it goes, I suppose, into the, into the you know, the, I don't want to say the mentality, but the view, the, the, the state of mind within the government and within personalities within the government that they um, don't somehow think that, uh, some of the stuff is newsworthy. I mean, what, what do you think of it? Is it newsworthy to go to patterns of behavior and, 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 and the issue as to whether women come out of it kicked around more than men? I think that there were certainly sections of the Four Corners report that were newsworthy uh, and, frankly, that deserve more follow-up than they've received. There were other sections that I had some 
journalistic concerns about, uh, which I'm, I'm happy to go into, but starting on the areas that, that need coverage, it does start with that premise that you mentioned, whether politicians' private lives are public business. Now, I think, by and large, it's a good thing that we're not in the British sphere of this, or to some extent the US, where there is too much invasion of politicians' private lives and making them public. However, I do think when conservative politicians wear that as a badge of pride as part of their ethos and their ideology and also then use it as a bludgeoning instrument to prevent social change in a more liberal smaller liberal sense as well that that then they expose themselves to the charge of hypocrisy if they don't live what they preach now that's more relevant to tudge than to porter because even though they're both conservatives tudge is more in that socially religious conservative sphere of the Liberal Party than Porter is. But in fairness, neither is a smaller Liberal moderate in the Liberal Party. So that's point number one. Point number two, I think, is that definitely when it came particularly to the staffer who apparently had that affair with Alan Tudge, a big part of this story, which is the more interesting part than the personal life, is the way she was treated in the aftermath of this affair, almost shunted to one side, the lack of processes in place, uh, perhaps for her to be able to have fair and reasonable treatment in the aftermath. The idea that in the wake of these sort of office romances, uh, the disempowered uh, subordinate figure, if you like, suffers as a consequence of the sort of fallout. And that usually is a woman, let's just be real about that. And therefore that has its own interesting, and, and I think that's the big follow-up that has not occurred as much as it perhaps should because it is applying to a party that doesn't have anywhere near gender equal representation in a way that the Labor Party does. So women would find it harder, whether they're staffers or, or anything else, to come forward in the Liberal Party than you would find it to come forward in the Labor Party just because there are less women that you can turn to uh, as a result of, of, of that background. So those are all the things that I think are legitimate. The one, and this exercises a lot of the concern of, of someone like Fletcher and, and liberals I've spoken to, the one thing that I did feel in that story was that Christian Porter, uh, who I have to acknowledge, uh, I, I knew pre-politics, he introduced my wife and I, um, but that's not why I say this. The, the evidence around him, I thought, fell short, uh, particularly given that he was denying it and there was other ambiguity there. It fell short of where I thought it was going to go. Uh, and that I know is part of what has frustrated certainly him, but, but also others within the government, this sense that they had a goal, uh, which ultimately they didn't quite achieve it uh, in terms of, because they had to then rely on suggestions and, and, and criticisms along the way. Whereas they had hard evidence when it came to Alan Tudge. Now, a lot of people I've spoken to just don't believe the attorney general and that's become a credibility issue for him. For me though, that's not the point. Uh, the point for me is it's the difference between journalism and academia. In academia, you start testing propositions and then your findings are based on what you find out. I get the impression that sometimes in journalism, since I've come across to it, you come up with a premise and then you go about trying to prove it in an investigation. And they did that with Alan Tudge. They fell short of it with Christian Porter, but they aired it anyway. And that's where there's a sense of frustration, I think, for some people in the Liberal Party about what happened with him. And then the added element of that, I suppose, is they felt like it was one-sided because there were only Liberals that were reviewed. And there's all sorts of examples, apparently, on the Labor side as well. Now, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, maybe they'll do a follow-up on Labor. I'm less 
drawn into that argument uh, than I am into the idea that the evidence fell short of the accusations uh, because I think that, you know, there are swings and roundabouts in that. There's nothing wrong with them on one episode going after Liberals and then they can go after Labor in other ways, which we've also seen Four Corners do. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of elements to it, but the biggest disappointment for me, frankly, is that this treatment of women in the Liberal Party, which I've written about, I think, more than any other man, uh, has been a problem for this party. Uh, and, you know, manifest by a lack of quotas and a lack of cultural change and all the rest of it, that could have gone so much further off the back of some of what was uh, provided in that report. And whether it was the report itself or whether it was the aftermath of it, we didn't see nearly as much of that as I think was perhaps warranted given the laggards that the Liberals are when it comes to gender. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I do agree that with the academic thing that you can't just start with an idea and then try and find some evidence that will dress it up and float it. That shouldn't be the way that journalism uh, works. Just quickly before you go, November, uh, the hottest month, according to the Bureau of Meteorology on record, the hottest November, I should say, uh, on, on record. And by quite a large margin, uh, mm. we are heading into another summer. Famously, in the last summer, the Prime Minister was in Hawaii as the, as the country burned. Um, is there going to be, do you think, as we head into a summer, already breaking records? Uh, do you feel the ground shifting? Do you see a, a, a permanent shift in the way in which we talk about and uh, seek to behave around the issues of a warming planet? Look, I really wish that we did see that change in time for the next election, but I think it's probably the election after that. Um, and the reason is the pandemic, actually. I think without the pandemic, in the wake of last year's bushfires, as well as, as you mentioned, the November heat record and what's potentially coming this round, and maybe one more round as well, by the way, if the election's not till 2022, without the pandemic and the economic effects and the vaccine and the aftermath of that and the positivity towards the Prime Minister for uh, governmental handling of that at state and federal level, uh, without all of that, I think absolutely climate change would be at the guts with a change of focus back to where it was when it unseated Howard, frankly, because Rudd was seen to want more action on it. Um, but I don't think so at the next election because I just feel like the, 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 the values and the focus of voters will be on the economy and jobs. And even though they're intertwined, you know, anyone that knows anything about climate change knows the, the economic imperative of it, not just the environmental. I just feel like it's been pushed back one election uh, courtesy of, uh, of the pandemic. But, Hugh, I really hope I'm wrong on that. What do you think? Well, there's always that, you know, some headline issues, some headlines will come out of uh, Joe Biden uh, overseas. It'll be back being talked about uh, with, with a bit more energy in the international uh, fora where these things exist. And uh, I think if we have a hot summer and, and, you know, we're being told it's likely to be wetter than usual, it may not quite reach the scale of pure temperature increases that we've seen in the past. It could be floods and everyone will say, see, I told you it never existed. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I just think it's one of those things that's harder and harder uh, to, to to have time go by and not and not be doing credible things about it. However, I, I was watching Gruen, in which Todd Sampson, our, our sometime Channel Ten colleague, was pointing out that um, when it comes to sustainability and fashion. Um, what matters is that uh, what people will pay for. And he was putting in a commercial sense, the commercial argument about how people market um, products from T-shirts to, to other items 
on the sustainability of it and, and, you know, the conditions under which things are manufactured and made as there's slave labor involved, all this sort of stuff. And saying that, you know, Australians are very good at talking about caring about it, but in the end, what's far more persuasive is the dollar. And, and this has been the perpetual problem in, in dealing with uh, our role in, in dealing with the warming climate is that I think a lot of Australians are concerned about it, but there's not been compellingly strong evidence that, uh, that we're, you know, any more interested in feeling any financial pain, any more than we want to spend a hundred dollars on a t-shirt just to feel as if it's been sustainably produced. That's the political marketplace, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, it, it, it's, you know, the, the old fashioned, I think it was Ronald Inglehart that drew a distinction between post-materialist and materialist values as well as voting intentions and climate, the environment, all of that was always in the post-materialist. And his argument was that we're moving more towards that. However, uh, materialist uh, voting intentions can take precedence at particular moments in history, like recession, for example. However, I, I think there is an increasing convergence of that because people are increasingly aware of the material consequences of environmental degradation. So it's no longer just seen as this idea. It's a post-materialist thing that you worry about when you have job security. But uh, I think the pandemic probably heightened things like the economy and job security as a, as a first order issue uh, you know, and, and climate change will follow. We'll see. I, I, I hope I'm wrong uh, because the government's been quite weak on it, frankly. Yeah. Okay. Peter, have a great day. We'll talk. Uh, I think our next episode might be a bit of a look back at the whole year and a look ahead to what could be uh, an election year, could be an election year in 2021. I tell you what, we'll easily, easily get that done in half an hour, Hugh, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, we'll talk soon. Stay cool. See you, mate. All the best. Bye now. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.